Hello and welcome to episode five of A Friendly Chat. This is Luke Maunder and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Naomi Hazenberg. Hi Luke, looking forward to episode five when we're going to cover injunctions and the timing of the undertakings that an implementer would have to give. So should we start with a bit of old history? Before Unwired Planet, if any of us can remember back quite so long. (laughs) Uh, I think probably where we should start is the IPCOM Nokia case, where after the pattern had been found to be valid, infringed and essential, the court said that an injunction was inappropriate, even at that stage. Uh, Nokia had agreed to take the FRAND license, but they said that the right course was to proceed to the FRAND determination rather than grant any type of injunction. Yes, that's right. And I, I think actually a lot of people often forget that there was a time before Unwired Planet when friend cases were considered before the English courts. Um, when, when interestingly enough, everything was dealt with rather sensibly and there weren't endless jurisdictional challenges and procedural arguments. But um, there were some Italian torpedoes. So let's, let's not let's not get too rosy tinted about it. <laughs> God, Italian torpedoes. That's taking me back a bit. OK, um, so yes, and then came Unwired Planet, obviously. So we have to touch on that. Um, we dealt with the history of that in some detail in the previous podcast. But I think just a reminder that there was a request for an undertaking from uh, Mr. Justice Burst, as he then was from Huawei to avoid the injunction after the Fran trial came as a bit of a surprise to Huawei, who I think were expecting a more Nokia IPCOM approach of, why are we talking about injunctions? Let's just have a Fran trial. Um, but that's when he crafted the uh, infamous, famous, whichever, pick, pick your poison, uh, Fran injunction. He did, didn't he? And, and, and that's kind of where this whole undertaking wording uh, kind of sprung from. And, and I think moving on from there, there was a, a, a range of cases that started and, and, and all of them, you know, asked for a friend injunction in some form or another. But I think the next kind of important decision that came about injunctions, although it probably was after the Court of Appeal and Unwired Planet, but there was a PI uh, hearing in the case of IPCOM and Xiaomi, where in that case, the patent was a tried and tested patent. It had been found to be valid and infringed before. You know, you can hear no sense of bitterness in my voice. <laughs> I'm not, not at all involved. None at all. Uh, None. <laughs> um, and the pattern was about to expire. And so the undertaking was asked for up front. And if not, if it wasn't given, it wasn't, you know, enter the license. It was if the patent is found to be valid and infringed again, enter the license. And if they wouldn't give that, we asked, uh, IPCOM asked for a PI. That wasn't granted. Um, and uh, Mr. Justice Hakon said that there was no right, IPCOM had no right to force Xiaomi to enter the license and there was no right to royalties. So we, we couldn't, there was no loss. So IPCOM didn't get that PI, which I think, you know, it, it was, was maybe an evolution too far for the, um, the friend uh, injunction. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. I think trying to move it that early and trying to bring preliminary injunctions into um the SEP space was, uh, in the words of Yes Minister, an extremely brave uh, attempt. Um, but it's interesting, this concept of no absolute right to a license, because you, you can bring that into the injunction space quite, quite easily, can't you? Because the, the, the age-old adage that the courts um, seem to follow here is that ultimately it's a choice. It's a choice between the UK market and taking the friend license. If you want to leave, you can leave. But of course, at, at some point and at some level of size for an entity, it's not really a choice anymore, is it? I mean, you could say it is still a choice, but realistically, none of the big brands would be able to withdraw from the United Kingdom market. So, No, no 
Absolutely right. And I think when we started to see people opting to be enjoined, you know, for example, in TQ Delta and uh, in the IPCOM HTC case, and then there was a Philips case, I think, as well, where they opted to, to take the injunction and leave the UK market. That, you know, is only an option up to a certain point, I think, realistically for companies. But um, yeah, it's an it's an interesting one where, you know, like you say, <laughs> how, how far does the choice go? Yeah, and uh, but I, I think I think the indication from our courts, unless anyone wants to have another pop at it, is certainly that we're heading towards, aren't we, as we're, we'll get into this idea that you have a patent trial, presuming you're not trying a different, more novel method to get to a friend, um, friend determination. You're going to have a patent trial, and it's really after you've got a valid, essential, and infringed set that you're going to have to make the election. I mean, there was this discussion in the UK Supreme Court, wasn't there, about a point not raised at first instance, about the general position of the court's discretion on injunctions, um, particularly around public policy and following a line of case law or various cases, including the case of Coventry, um, about whether or not an injunction on a, a SEP was a good idea per se, and, and leaning into that sort of eBay Merck exchange position in the United States of America. Yeah, and, and you know, like the, the, Supreme Court's analysis of that I think was really interesting you know when you when there is the option to take the frowned license to avoid an injunction you know they really said well we don't really have the eBay problem here because you're never going to be able to extort huge fees and huge royalties from anyone because the only thing you're going to get from someone is a frowned royalty which by definition is not too high um but you know they really balanced up the 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 provision of the Etsy IPR policy and how that you know seeks the balance between hold up and hold out and and where that sits and and you know saying that damages in lieu wouldn't be an adequate remedy I think you know really puts implementers in mind that that injunction is going to be a real risk if they choose not to take the license at the right time. Yeah, the con- the concern was this idea that you'd end up with country by country holdout. And uh, the counter argument is if you're litigating in 16 jurisdictions, if you lose in four of them and have to pay out each time, you'd see sense and come to the table. But um, the reality is that does need an injunction behind it in order to to really sort of eventuate the, the, the decision to come to the table. If you know you're only ever going to pay what you would have paid anyway, what yeah. was the point? That, that, that's the Supreme Court's sort of main argument. I think you're absolutely right, don't you? It's, it's, it's how far companies are willing to push the endless litigation before they're willing to, you know, sign up to the license. And there, like you said, there will come a point when you're paying damages by a country by country basis when you've, you may as well have just taken the friend license at some point. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. And then I think after that, it kind of, you know, after the Supreme Court, it developed, didn't it? And I think the next big decision on injunctions was um, from Mr. Justice Mead last year in the Optus and Apple case, when he was really looking at the issues of whether Apple was or wasn't an unwilling licensee and and what the impact of um, Clause 6.1 of the Etsy IPR policy was on injunctions. Yeah, well, I I think that's a good case to go to next because it's a reminder that the English court sees things somewhat differently to a number of other jurisdictions, particularly the continental courts, because for the English court, this is prima facie, you you know, this is a a contract issue, right? This is essentially there is a third party contract, you have a right to enforce it as a third party. And uh, in the cases we've seen to date in the UK, that's been invoked as a a contractual defence to the claim for an injunction 
for step infringement. Uh, and so the court said, well, okay, well, let's actually look at clause 6.1, you know, the source of this, this right, let's interpret it properly, uh, and see where we end up. Um, Mr. Justice Mead did that. He looked at w- the timing of when that needed to happen. He looked at what it what it meant. And he basically concluded that any party can at any time invoke it, you know, if you choose not to invoke it, you can get injuncted. But but it's actually at the point of being injuncted when you you do still have a right to invoke it. Yeah, it's like I think he, you know, I think he did quite a useful like definition of the class of the beneficiaries of that clause, didn't he? And it was anybody who is willing to enter that found license can rely on that contractual defence. But at the point when you are found to infringe a valid and essential SEP, it's kind of you've got to the point of, okay, you've been saying that you want to invoke the benefit of this clause. Well, now you're at the crunch point. Are you going to take the license or are you going to be enjoined in the UK? Time's up. Yeah, exactly. And um, to have and take a license and to operate under a license, not not to sort of run around infringing patents willy-nilly is essentially the, the, the point that he made. Um, and he did that even against the the presumption that um, Optus had abused a dominant position. I hasten to say he hadn't found that Optus had abused a dominant position. That was for a later trial. But he agreed that he needed to proceed on the assumption that they had in order to take Apple's case at its highest. Um, and he basically concluded that if the while there were a number of uh, factors can, sort of relevant to the grant of an injunction, because it is a discretionary remedy, if a putative licensor has agreed to enter into the license, then even if there had been historic abuse, um, that sort of cured the potential for future abuse. So end of story, Apple, therefore, you know, an injunction was presumed. Apple argued a few discretionary things, which, to be honest, was probably a bit of a rehash of Supreme Court uh, issues. And they were just put to their election. But of course, they didn't actually just undertake to take the fan license, did they? <laughs> no. And, and, you know, that there is a precursor to this case, it wasn't there, that we've maybe skipped over in, that, in the first, I think, trial, that technical trial that Mr Justice Bursasy then was heard when he, he found that the, I think it was the 818 patent, was valid and infringed and essential, and it was imminently expiring. I, I think it caught some people off guard when they were summoned to provide an undertaking uh, several days before expiry or, or be enjoined. And I think at that stage, they gave a massively caveated undertaking that was like, we will undertake to take the license if we need one, if we say we want one, if we ever need one, if the court sets one, uh, as many caveats as you could you could think. But yes, I mean, Apple's position was that they shouldn't have to make that undertaking until they know what the terms are. So um, even after the, the, the Mr. Justice Mead decision, it wasn't quite so clear cut for them. Uh, yes, I, I think there was even a presuming it's found later that we had to give this undertaking. And if it's found what we didn't, then we didn't do it. And it's all a figment of everyone's imagination. Indeed. About uh, as caveated as humanly <laughs> possible. But uh, as you say, then it went up to the Court of Appeal, didn't it? Where um, it, it came before a panel. But of course, Lord Justice Arnold uh, famously wrote the leading judgment on that one quite recently. He did. And that's probably, you know, I think that's probably our most recent and exciting in frowned world uh, decision that we've had. And and you're right, Lord Justice Arnold uh, kind of gave the leading judgment in that one and looked through Mr. Justice Mead's incredibly thorough judgment and picked up each of the points of appeal. And and it's fair to say there was an appeal on both sides, wasn't there? So Optus 
Apple was appealing the, the, you know, essentially saying you shouldn't have to give the undertaking or face an injunction in that interim period between the finding of validity, essentiality and infringement. You should be able to wait until you know what the front terms are. And Optus were saying it said at one point you didn't want that license. You should lose the benefit of the uh, protection of Clause 6.1 completely forever. And, you know, a thorough analysis, uh, as you'd expect from Lord Justice Arnold, rejected both of those points. But it's probably interesting to look at the rejection of, of Apple's arguments first. And, you know, he agreed with Mr Justice Mead that the relevant clause in the IPR policy was for the benefit of those who will agree to take the license on objectively fran terms and that you can't take the benefit of that the patentee's undertaking to Etsy without the corresponding burden of having of agreeing to enter that license, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. And he he gave some pretty short shrift to a, a lot of the arguments. And um, just just for the sake of balance, it's fair to say that he dismissed rather rather quickly everybody's arguments. Um, but certainly Apple's suggestion that it was signing a blank check, he was he was rather unimpressed with, as he said, you know, Apple's a not a small company, probably not particularly unused to estimating potential future liabilities, so it wasn't really blank. Um, and I think he was a bit put out by the suggestion that the English court would determine uncommercial or unviable terms, um, particularly for an entity with the with the financial resources of Apple. There was a lot of, um, this is a bad point, this is a hopeless point, but on that one I think there was quite a lot of scathing, you could you could hear the the seething behind some of the comments about there is a fairly extensive amount of economic evidence that will be heard uh, when the Fran terms will be determined. You know, well, absolutely, and and indeed he was equally scathing about this suggestion that they should lose the right to rely on the Fran obligation. You know, this suggestion Optus was pursuing an unqualified injunction. He thought was just a sort of rampant ground for hold up because effectively Optus could then say, well, we'll permanently bar you from the UK unless you pay whatever the hell we want. Absolutely right. You know, he, as as Mr. Justice Mead did and the Supreme Court did in, in Unwired Planet, he, he really emphasised that there was a balance, you know, that, that clause of the Etsy policy was seeking to, to balance the problems of hold up and hold out. And if you change your mind, even if whatever you've done in the past, you've changed your mind and say you don't want the licence, at the point when you say you do want to commit to take the license set by the court, you bring yourself within the def, you know, the class of beneficiaries of that clause and you can't be enjoined in the UK. So Yeah. A bit of Catholic deathbed repentance effectively is, is permitted in the <laughs> world, right? Indeed. So uh, repent of all your sins and license will be yours. Um, but he was—he did conclude with a fairly scathing, um, scathing comment, didn't he, about the state of the system, which he replied, said was dysfunctional. Um, yeah. Everyone was arguing just for, for what they want. Everyone was trying to game the system in their favour. You just needed to seek a balance. That's the whole point of the policy. Um, and frankly, the only way to put a stop to such behaviour is for SDOs like Etsy to make legally enforceable arbitration of their disputes part of the policy, which is a lovely sentiment. Um, and obviously, that would go some way to solving the, 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 the issues insofar as one is a fan of arbitration as a means to resolve them. Um, but, but given the need for these SDOs to have unanimity to a degree or, or consensus among their members to change their policies, I suspect this isn't particularly likely. Um, and j- just for my own part, I just observed that in, insofar as one is striving for transparency in, in these regimes, uh, arbitration is not infamous for, for being 
open and transparent in terms of what people are paying. We wouldn't have very much to have said in our uh, disclosure and confidentiality episode if, if everything happened by arbitration. Tumbleweed. <laughs> yeah, we have no idea. <laughs> um, you know, you're right. And, and I think, you know, everyone who's been at the conferences where Lord Justice Arnold has spoken on this issue in the last two years, he's really very keen on this solution, which is entirely sensible but like you say quite hard to practically implement maybe mandatory global resolution by the english courts could be a completely you know i just throw that out there as a completely innocent thought process yeah i mean us english lawyers why would we suggest that as a good solution and i think you know probably the the last case to talk about in in this uh kind of set of decisions is the interdigital Lenovo case when I think everybody probably thought that Mr. Justice Mead's decision, which ran to several hundreds of pages, entirely covered the problems and when the undertaking need to be given. But it didn't. But it did not, of course <laughs> not. Um, and and in that case, Lenovo had been found to in, infringe one of the interdigital patents, and it, I mean it hadn't entirely set out exactly what undertaking it was willing to give or not but there was um parallel fran cases weren't there in in the states and in china and that the you know they wanted the uk court to take that into account in the fran determination and whether or not an an, an injunction that caveated how much they were willing to take the U, the court determined license or or a hypothetical one i think that um mr justice hakon uh put forward was what if you undertake to take the fran license set by a different court has that, has that question been answered? Have you satisfied, have you brought yourself within the class of beneficiaries of, of Clause 6.1 of the XCIPR policy and can you avoid the injunction? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is where, this is the great fun part because you bring in jurisdiction again, which of obviously course. is everybody's favourite <laughs> topic. Um, maybe just me in that room, but there we are. Um, <laughs> where you've got this idea of an English court setting a fran rate globally, but that an entity going, well, hang on a minute, I've got proceedings on foot in the United States that's going to tell me the rate for the US patents. And I've got proceedings on foot in the People's Republic of China. And they're going to tell me the proper rate for the Chinese patents. And, you know, I, I've previously said I was willing to take the US license if they took into account the Chinese rate. And I'll say to you, English court, that I'll absolutely take the English license. As long as you tell me it'll take into account what the US said for the US and China said for China. Um, and it's quite a, a, a interesting approach compared to other entities like Oppo, who are sort of conducting a global fran dispute warfare, where there's sort of there's a global dispute in one country and a global dispute in another, and and everyone's trying to get their preferred one. This is much more uh, nuanced, nuanced indeed, and and relies quite heavily on what a, a number of judges have said in the past, including the the late um, Mr. Justice Henry Carr. Um, and I believe at one point Mr Justice Nugi and, and even a couple of the other justices have indicated that they would be willing to uh, look at what other courts have said for patents within their jurisdiction because obviously that's going to be a better reflection of, of what that market should bear as a rate than, than what the English court is going to decide for that market based on the comparables. So uh, an interesting way forward that uh, that has been punted off, I believe, by his honour Judge Hakon for consideration by Mr. Justice Miller at the substantive fan trial. Which at the time of Mr. Justice Hakon's decision was only a few weeks away. So I think, you know, maybe that allowed him to, you know, be able to put the issue off to, to somewhere that, you know, was going to be determined in a, a timely fashion. But we're, we're still waiting for that decision. So, you know, we should get the answer to that. But like you said, it might be that the 
nuanced situation is an easier one to solve than the hypothetical situation uh, that Mr. Justice Hakon put forward of what happens if you just get told, well, I won't undertake to take the UK court determined license for global the global terms, but I will undertake to take the Chinese global terms or the American global terms. What do you do then? Because there's so much discussion in the judgments that we've seen today about agreeing to take objectively frank terms. How do you, how do you, how does anybody grapple with those issues? <laughs> well, yeah, indeed, and avoid the potential for abuse because you can see, can't you, a clear distinction between let's say you're in Germany and you say to the German court, well, I've undertaken to take the English terms and there's a friend trial in three weeks and I'll have a license straight after that. How do you feel about that German court? Uh, Or saying to the English court in another situation, I'll undertake to take a license set by the French court. I just started my proceedings and based on the estimated timetable, I expect a determination from the final determination, including all routes of appeal by the 2030s. You know, one of them looks please can I wait. more. Yeah, please can I wait? One of them looks about a bit more reasonable than the other one. Um, but as you say, that's it's that general question of can you undertake to take from another tribunal? Where I mean, I doubt there's going to be an absolute rule. There'll be an element of discretion, but this more nuanced one of can I undertake to take it if it will take into account inputs? Uh, I, I mean, you know, and the, the scope for the English court to set set something and then include an adjustment mechanism. So you're still entering the license set by the English court, aren't you? Yeah, Which absolutely. Is a, a different, a very different kettle of fish. It is. But I think that probably brings us to a close for this one. Indeed. And if you have the opportunity, anytime there's a judgment in the English courts, we will update our SEP and Fran tracker. And there will be rapid reaction webinars, as, as well as Naomi and I having a nice friendly chat. Hopefully. Um, hopefully on Interdigital and Novo, but also Optus and Apple. So until next time. Mm-hmm.